What happens when the treatment is worse than the disease? What happens when there's nothing more to do? What is palliative care? What is hospice? Are they the same thing? Join us as we talk about these questions and more on the very first episode of Medical Time Out. Welcome to Medical Time Out, a podcast where we unpack all things palliative care. I'm Chinlin Ching. I'm Rashmi Kadilkar. Today, we'll be discussing the basics of palliative care versus hospice, including what they are, what they do, and how they're alike, and how they're different. Before we jump in, though, Rashmi, I think we need to talk about who we are and why we're doing this. So we are both palliative care physicians at Highland Hospital in Rochester, which is part of the University of Rochester medical system. Chinlin, do you want to talk a little bit about what exactly brought this podcast about? I think it all started with the realization that um, there is a huge need for palliative care in our affiliate hospitals in the rural uh, regions of, of our state. Um, this podcast is grant funded. The idea was that we wanted to bring palliative care to other people. Um, you know, we'll be talking about how palliative care is about symptom management and good communication skills. That's really not specialty medicine, right? That's just good medicine. Um, and we really believe that all doctors can provide good medicine, um, but also need to recognize when to call us in. And so all of these podcasts will talk about all of that, hopefully. Let's start with the most basic questions. What is palliative care, Rashmi? What is hospice? Um, are they the same thing? So here's what I always tell patients and families. This is kind of a spiel that I give with every, every consult that I do in the hospital. So palliative care is a relatively new specialty of medicine. It's probably been a defined specialty for, I don't know, 15, 20, maybe 25 years at this point. Um, and we take care of people who have serious and life-altering and sometimes life-limiting illnesses, like cancer, like Alzheimer's disease, like end-stage cardiac disease or liver disease. Um, and we focus on a few different things. Um, so we focus uh, on symptom management um, because obviously most diseases come with symptoms and managing those is such a huge part of managing the disease. We help with something called goals of care, which is a jargony way of saying that you know, in the 2020s, there are so many things that medicine can offer to patients, medications and surgeries and procedures and all kinds of things. Um, but not everything that we can do is right for every given patient, for every given family system. So our job in palliative care is to help people figure out or, or talk through what matters most to them, what makes their life most worth living. Um, and then working with them and with the medical team to try to tailor their medical treatments so that we get more of what they do want out of life and less of what they don't want out of life. Um, and then this last part I always put out there just because if you Google palliative care, that word hospice is going to pop up also. They're not the same thing. Palliative care certainly does take care of patients when they come close to the end of life. Um, we work very closely with a team called hospice when we do that. We're not the same thing exactly as hospice. Um, Hospice is part of palliative care, not all of palliative care is hospice. Palliative care is something that patients can actually have access to throughout the course of their illness. Um, so they're different. We'll talk a little bit more about what one does versus what the other adds. Um, but they are different. It's important to know that. Um, and I just throw it out there so that, so that people 
don't get scared if they Google and see that word. Um, is that pretty close to what you tell people? Is there anything, anything more or less that you say? You know, I think you hit a, uh, on a really important point, which is that I think that, and we'll be unpacking all of this in future episodes, but the idea of death and dying is terrifying to people. And so when they think that there's going to be a doctor who specializes in this walking into their room, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of stigma. So I make sure my elevator speech um, is not intimidating and it is a good intro to what I'm hoping we can do. So my elevator speech goes like this. I'm Dr. Ching. I'm one of the palliative care doctors here. Um, I'm a specialist, and just like other medicine specialties like cardiology and pulmonology, we specialize in something, but instead of an organ system, I specialize in a couple of things. I specialize in symptom management. So if someone's really sick and they have pain or shortness of breath or nausea, um, I'm the one who comes in and can help them with those symptoms. The other hat that I wear is what we call goals of care discussions. And this is where actually our title comes from, Medical Timeout. The way I explain those is um, when there's a lot of doctors coming into the room and they're saying a lot of different things, we come in and we do a timeout with you, what I call a medical timeout. We pause everything. We sit down together. We unpack everything. We make sure everyone's heard and understood. Um, we are all on the same page. And then together we pick the path that makes the most sense moving forward. Um, so that's actually where our title medical timeout came from is sort of that's how I explain what we do. When I come into the room, we're doing timeout together. Um, and um, that's my spiel. So Rashmi, we named three things that palliative care addresses. Symptom management, goals of care, and end of life care. Why don't we take them in turn? Can you tell me more about symptom management? Why is it so important? So for many people, what the, the, the hard part about being sick is that you don't feel well. You have symptoms, you have pain, you have nausea, you have trouble breathing, you have constipation, whatever it is. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the treatments that we have for illnesses also cause symptoms that, that you know, we call them side effects, but they're really other symptoms. Um, and having those symptoms can really affect day-to-day -day life. You know, if, if, you're, if you're having pain or if you can't breathe, maybe you can't go to work that day, or maybe you can't take care of yourself because of, because of physical limitations. Um, maybe it's hard for you to interact with your loved ones if you're so focused on those symptoms that you have. So it's, it's so consuming that if you can't participate in your daily life, you can also have trouble just thinking straight and looking ahead and making plans and making decisions about what to do about your illness, what to do about other aspects of your life. And so when we really focus on symptom management for people who have an illness, it's not just that we're allowing a patient to feel better and participate more fully in their life. We're also um, hopefully opening things up for them so that, so that they can think more clearly and, and critically about what their options are and what to do going forward. I always say, you're not going to do well unless you feel well, right? right? So, so those go hand in hand. Right. So luckily, palliative care specialists are experts in symptom management. We are. So a huge part of our training um, is on different types of medications, yes, but also just on being aware of all the other modalities um, for different types of symptom management. So for pain, for example, you know, everybody knows about pain medicines. Everybody knows about opioids, which we'll talk about more um, in, our, in our next episode. But there's also other things that you can do for pain, and some of them are as simple as putting a heating pad on the part that hurts, and some of them are as complex as, um, you know, a nerve block or a surgery or something like that. Um, we 
know about different types of medicines you can use for shortness of breath and also that you can just you know stick a fan on your face and sometimes that can make a tremendous difference um, we use medicines sometimes in different ways than than what other clinicians might so for example um, there's a medicine called haloperidol which people um, know of as a treatment for schizophrenia and agitation and things like that and we're trained to know that that's actually one of the best treatments out there for nausea in really low doses. So um, that's something that we have a lot of knowledge about the medications. And then, as I said, we also, you know, know about things like radiation and nerves, nerve blocks and changing your diet and, and changing the times of day that you're eating in order to help your nausea. Just some of those really simple things that sometimes get lost in, in, in treating a disease. One of the questions that we always ask patients, um, it's actually part of the, the template that we use when we document our consults, is to ask, what bothers you the most? Um, and sometimes the answer to that question is, it's my pain, or it's my nausea, or I'm, I'm having trouble doing X, Y, Z. Um, and so we really try to take the time to focus on that thing that bothers them most and relieve that symptom so that we can talk about other things while also helping the patient to feel better. And sometimes that's existential, right? I'm right. scared. I'm worried. I'm not ready to leave my family. Um, it doesn't always have to be a physical symptom either, and those are all things that we try to help patients with. Um, anxiety, depression, mood changes. When you're sick um, and you're worried, that, that all comes together and goes hand in hand. Um, can palliative care help with these existential things? That's something that we help with also. So of course, we sometimes use medications. There are lots of medications, benzodiazepines and other things that, that we might prescribe to help. But a lot of it is the non-medication aspects of, of treating anxiety and depression. Um, so some of it is really just being there in the moment, um, you know, being a therapeutic presence, listening, um, responding to what the patient is saying and, and providing that reassurance that somebody is there, somebody cares, and somebody is working to help them to feel better and to unpack everything that they're going through. Um, we also work as part of a team. Um, so on our team, we have, we have physicians, we have nurse practitioners, physician assistants. Um, we work with the social workers at our hospital. We work with the chaplains at our hospital. Um, and sometimes bringing in other people, um, specifically our chaplains and our social workers, they can provide an additional presence and can really help um, a patient to, to understand some of that existential suffering or some of those existential questions that go along with, with being sick. The other thing that we do, you know, and this kind of um, goes a little bit to that, that second piece that I mentioned, which is the goals of care part, is that, you know, once we have started to help somebody to feel better, then we can start talking about what's, what's coming, what's, what's coming next, where do we go from here? And I think that knowing that you're planning for the future, knowing what to expect, that can be really empowering um, and that can help to give back a little bit of a sense of control that, that's so easy to lose when you're sick. Um, and I think that can go a long way towards relieving some of that anxiety and depression and some of those existential things. I always say the most important skills that a palliative care provider has is we meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. We don't have an agenda. And we're able to not only meet them where they are, but bring them where they need to be. Um, and so, you know, medical decision-making can be so complex. Let's talk more about that. So, you know, I mentioned in that opening spiel of mine that um, there are a lot of things that we can do in medicine these days. <laughs> I talked to a doctor from the UK just a few weeks ago, um, 
and he was saying he was he was the family member of somebody who we were taking care of. Um, and, and the family was being bombarded with all these choices. And he said, you know, in the UK, we just tell people what to do. You know, like the doctor says, here's what you've got. Here is how we're going to deal with it. And he was just it, it was really um, overwhelming to him as a, as a doctor that in the United States, we don't do that. We, we, you know, patient autonomy is such a cornerstone of our medical system. Um, and so sometimes maybe we lean on that too hard. I always give the analogy of a buffet. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like, you know, we bring someone who's never had American food to the Golden Corral and they look at this buffet and they're like, what is this food and how do I eat it? Um, and so the next thing you know, they're putting mashed potatoes on top of whipped cream with a little bit of bacon bits, and um, it, it becomes a mess. So what I often say is think of it more of asking first, do you have any dietary restrictions? What are your values? You're a vegetarian? Come over here to the salad bar. Maybe stay away from the chicken and the steak. Um, that's more of what we do in palliative care is find out what someone's values are and then translate it into an intervention. We should not expect um, laymen to understand medical terms. We should not um, offer them a buffet of medical interventions that they have nothing to, to know about. Right. Um, and so that's that's how I approach it yeah. as well. Yeah, it's a that's a great analogy, um, and, and probably one that I will steal and, and use more often than I than I already do. Um, and so I think for me, when I start talking about goals of care with a patient, the first thing I always try to do is elicit what their understanding of this situation is. Um, actually, the first thing I do is ask them if they know what palliative care is and, and tell them about why why I'm in the room. But I, I do want to talk about what their understanding of the disease is. And I will ask them, what have your other doctors and nurses told you about what's going on with your illness and what's going on with you? And I, I, I was taught um, in my training not to ask, what do you understand about your disease, but rather to say, what have the doctors and nurses said to you? Because that way we've sort of put the onus on the medical team to communicate appropriately. We haven't put the onus on the patient to have understood and processed what we're saying. Um, and I think that's a really important starting point because we find sometimes when we ask these questions that people really don't know anything. You know, oh, well, I was told that I had some problems with my heart, but they really don't know what that means or what the implications are. Um, or sometimes, oh, well, I, I have some problems with my heart, but my cardiologist said I was doing fine the last time I, I had a visit. And so sometimes there is such an enormous gap between what we as the medical team know to be the case versus what the patient and the family have um, have understood. And then, you know, and sometimes that's because when you're sick and you're not feeling well, it's hard to take everything in and process it. And sometimes it's because maybe we haven't done as good of a job of communicating as we thought that we did. So I think that that's always the first step, because I think if we're if we don't have common ground, if we're not in the same place in terms of understanding what's happening, it's really hard to move forward. It's hard for the patient to make any kind of informed choices. You know, we're not, um, that's just, again, leading them to that buffet and saying, here you go, mm -hmm. you know, have at it, have the bacon bits and the whipped cream, <laughs> both of which individually Sounds make things amazing. much better, but together. But these aren't one-time conversations, Correct. are they? Right? No, these are things that happen over, um, over, sometimes days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. Um, this is not a one and done conversation because things change over the course of the illness. Um, 
you might start talking with somebody, you know, pretty soon after their diagnosis or the first time they're in the hospital for some kind of a complication. Um, so you might want to talk about, you know, how how are things going now? How are you feeling? Um, how is treatment going? Have, are you being told that it's working? How are the burdens of treatment? Is it is it worth it to you to continue to do this kind of treatment? Or is it maybe time to think about doing something else? Do you know what to expect going forward? Do you know whether the goal of this treatment is to cure your cancer or that the goal of the, of the treatment is to kind of hold the cancer at bay for as long as it possibly can, but it's not going to cure the cancer? It's important for patients to know what, what we're going for so that they're not blindsided and surprised when it turns out that what they thought was going to happen doesn't really happen. And then it's also important, as you mentioned, to talk about maybe the most important thing really is to talk about what are the patient's values? What makes their life worth living? You know, for some people, what makes life worth living is being the person that they were pre-illness. You know, they're they're highly functional, they're taking care of themselves, they're walking around, they're they're playing golf, they're, you know, playing their trumpet, they're traveling and seeing family and friends and things like that. And anything less than that is not acceptable to them. For some people, it's just being alive, you know, having a body that's alive and, and, and having, uh, you know, being awake and being able to interact with their loved ones in some fashion. For many people, that's I want to be able to talk with my family. But for some people, it's, it's really just, you know, even if I'm on a ventilator, but I'm awake and comfortable and can blink and, you know, give thumbs up and thumbs down to my family so that so that they know how things are going. That's enough for me. You know, and of course, there's all of that room in between, you know, people, there's all kinds of things that, that make life worth living for people. And so it's really important for us to know what are those things, you know, who supports you? Are there spiritual components to, to what makes your life worth living and, and, and how do those support you? And maybe how do those sometimes um, pose a source of, of, of struggle as you as you deal with what you're going through? And then once you have all of this information you can help the patient and the family to sift through what all the options are. As you said, you know, you've got, you've got this dietary restriction, so maybe this isn't right for you, or maybe you really, you really like this kind of food. So let's head over here and let's get that. So we can use what, what the patient and family tell us about themselves, how they've always lived, how they want to continue to live, um, to help decide what of the available medical options make the most sense to them. Um, you know, I, something I didn't mention is, um, if the patient and family want it, I think we should always be willing to share prognosis because without knowing, again, how a treatment is expected to go and how long the effects are supposed to last, it's really hard to make decisions about the future. So I think um, that's that's something that we in palliative care um, are also skilled in doing. Um, and so that's another part of the information. You put it all together, you figure out what options make the most sense for them. Um, and I think one of the strengths, too, of us in palliative care is that we are not afraid to make recommendations. Um, like that doctor from the UK said, you know, sometimes you do have to say, look, here's the situation. Here's what I recommend. Given what you've told me about yourself and about what's important to you, here's what I think that we should be doing in terms of, of medical treatments. Um, ultimately, they may choose another option if it's on the table, but I think it is important for us to be very upfront with, with what we think is the right thing to do or, or maybe what we would do if our families were, were in a similar situation. And I think that we um, meet people where they are, and then we help guide them on this path of medical decision-making. Um, and sometimes that path may not lead 
to more interventions, right? So sometimes disease-directed therapy and life-prolonging therapy just doesn't fit within the picture and the framework of what they've told us is most important to them. The definition of success for a physician may be very different from the definition of success for this person that we're treating, um, and you can't make assumptions. All of this takes time, right? So this is time investment, and this is time that palliative care specialists love investing in. Um, How can palliative care support a patient when there is so much going on and there's so many emotions happening? So, and you're talking specifically kind of when we've made the decision not to pursue any further... Yes, exactly. When when really, you know... Just because we can doesn't mean we should. We right. say that all the time, right? right. When, when disease-directed therapy and life-prolonging treatments are, aren't jiving with what they're saying is important to them, what happens right. then? So I think I, I do want to take one little step to the side and say that, you know, sometimes when people get to that point where, um, where disease-directed therapy, where life-prolonging therapy is no longer the right choice for the patient, Um, Sometimes, you know, people will use this phrase, well, you know, there's nothing more we can do. There's no further treatment. Um, And that's not true. I don't, you know, I I wish people wouldn't wouldn't use that phrase. Unfortunately, I think I hear it less and less. Um, But there's still plenty we can do. Stopping disease-directed or life-prolonging therapy is not the same thing as stopping therapy. You know, throughout the entire course of illness, right up... um, through the end of life. So even after somebody has decided to stop treating their cancer specifically, for example, we can still continue to provide that really expert symptom management. Um, we know that symptoms may get worse as a disease progresses, and so we can continue to focus on those things that are that are distressing. We can continue to provide education about what's going on. We can continue to, to make decisions. I mean, so sometimes those big picture decisions are made, but there are smaller everyday decisions that, that people could use guidance with. And so we can con- continue to do that. Um, we can continue to provide emotional support in terms of helping them know what to expect and addressing their spiritual concerns and, and things like that. You know, really all in the context of, of helping them live their lives the way that they want to live their lives. The goal here is to help people, even if they're not treating their their illness anymore, the goal is to help people continue to live as well as they can for as long as they can. Um, And I think this is where the involvement of hospice becomes a very good option because that's the whole goal of of hospice is for people who have a life limiting and, and a terminal illness and they're not pursuing treatment for that illness going forward, we still want them to live as long as uh, as well as they can for as long as they can. And you know, since we're uh, the ones who usually call out the big elephant in the room, I'll just call it out. People are terrified of talking about death and dying in America, right? It's just something in our culture that we have not embraced. Yeah. Um, and so I'm always amazed by how much power people think I have. Like I show up in the room, and all of a sudden you're going to die. I, I recognize very much that if I never showed up to work again, there's gonna be tragedy, there's gonna be death and dying, and and there's probably gonna be very uncomfortable death and dying. And so the reason why I show up to work every day is because um, there is great satisfaction and gratification of helping someone down this path that's going to happen. All we're doing is taking the time to talk about it um, and kind of helping people with the emotions that go with it. So, when I enter a room and I see the fear in patients' eyes about why why am I there, what aren't people telling me, um, a lot of the work that we do is on unpacking that fear. 
and I, I will say, you know, I'm, I'm here to talk about the fact that we may be talking about end-of-life planning, um, name the big elephant in the room. But the way I explain hospice is that um, I'm, I'm a nerd, so you'll find that out as we go along with this podcast. Um, squares and rectangles, right? So all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Um, all hospice is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice. And it's part of the discussion that we have to determine whether or not hospice is part of the plan right now. Um, and so I explain hospice as palliative care specifically for the end of life. What do you think? So, you know, I, I said very early in my spiel that, 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 you know, we are not, we are not hospice. I personally of our team do happen to, to work with a hospice also. Hospice. So sometimes I will, you know, I will go into a, uh, I will go into a patient's room and I will have my ID facing outward, you know, with, with the Highland hospital side. And sometimes when I start to talk about hospice, I will flip it around um, so that my hospice ID is what's showing. Um, so I, I think of hospice, um, again, as a, as a few different things. First and foremost, I think hospice is a philosophy of care. It's palliative care for the end of life. Um, and so there are, there are two important components there in palliative care for the end of life. The one thing is that in order to access hospice, a patient needs to be at the end of life. That means that the patient needs to have a prognosis as, as certified by two physicians of six months or less if the disease continues along its natural course. That doesn't mean that the patient is definitely going to die in six months. Sometimes people live longer than we think that they're going to live. Sometimes people die much faster than we think. Sometimes people develop infections or bowel obstructions or other complications that really hasten um, the end of their life much, much sooner than we think it's going to come. But in order to, to access this benefit, um, people need to have that, that terminal prognosis of six months or less. And the other thing is that people need to buy into this philosophy of hospice. So the idea is that the philosophy of hospice is that it is purely comfort focused. Um, it is purely focused on really excellent symptom management, um, education, psychosocial support, emotional support, spiritual support. It's not focused on disease directed or life prolonging therapy. So people who are on hospice are not getting regular blood work. They're not getting regular um, pulse ox measurements or blood pressure medicine, um, measurements or things like that. Um, they're not getting procedures. They're not getting chemotherapy. They're not going back and forth to the hospital. And the reason they're not doing that is because they have elected this plan of care where they, where they acknowledge that they don't want to do those things anymore, that doing those things um, is, is more burdensome to them without having the payoff that they would want at the end. So those are the two big things, terminal prognosis and um, agreement with that, with that purely comfort-oriented, non-disease-directed philosophy of hospice. Once those two conditions are met, then patients have access to this hospice benefit that I've mentioned, and that's hospice is an insurance benefit. It's, it's something that was created by Congress in the 1980s, I think. Um, Medicare has this benefit for hospice, which basically says that once you've got the terminal prognosis and you've bought into this plan of care, you have access to, um, to this, to, you know, your insurance then will pay for care going forward that is directed towards um, 
treating the symptoms and the psychosocial emotional aspects of your terminal illness going forward. It won't be that, that insurance is covering trying to cure the illness or trying to make you live longer. They will try to make you live better. Um, and that comes with a lot of support that you don't get with your traditional insurance, with traditional Medicare, uh, with traditional medical care. So hospice um, provides, you know, medications and equipment, um, you know, hospital, hospital beds and commodes and supplemental oxygen and things like that um, as necessary for care of that terminal illness and its symptoms. Hospice is administered by a team of people. Um, there's a registered nurse who manages every patient's case. Every patient has a social worker. Every patient has um, a chaplain. Every patient has access to some home health aid support. Um, and what those people do is assess the symptoms, change around the medications as necessary to, um, to better treat the symptoms. Um, the nurse can teach the patient and the family about what might be coming in terms of um, you know, maybe maybe you're going to get weaker, maybe you're going to get sleepier, maybe you're going to need more help getting out of bed or, or moving in bed as, as your disease progresses. Here's how you do that. Here's how you um, turn somebody in bed. Here's how you help them transfer to a commode. Here's how you clean them when they get to the point that they can't do that anymore. Um, you know, the hospice social worker can help um, connect people with, with other resources. Um, the hospice chaplain will provide spiritual care. There's, again, a little bit of aid support that can come into the home um, a couple of hours a day, maybe several days a week to help with some of that personal care. Um, hospice also provides bereavement support. Um, during the hospice episode, because sometimes people are grieving even before death comes, but certainly for the family afterwards. Um, and then what I think actually is one of the best benefits of hospice is 24-hour on-call support. So um, if you're on hospice and if you run into trouble at 2 in the morning, you don't have to call 911. You don't have to get in an ambulance and go back to the emergency department. Um, you call hospice um, because there's always a nurse who's on call. There are always physicians on call or nurse practitioners on call who can help to deal with, with whatever it is um, you need to address. Um, and so the, the big benefit of hospice, I think, is that hospice comes where you are. You don't have to go someplace. Hospice comes to you. I'm really glad you're a hospice medical director. That's a lot of information. So I want to unpack something that you said because it went along with something you said before in the podcast, which is this idea of um, there's nothing more to do. When you talk about the hospice philosophy and we're talking about we're not going to do this anymore and we're not going to do that anymore, one thing that people really bristle at is the, the idea that it feels like we're pulling the plug, right? We're, we're stopping things. We're, we're drawing care. That is one of my pet peeves is the language we use. We don't stop care. We don't withdraw care. We stop interventions that aren't helping. Right. We withdraw interventions that are no longer helping. Um, but... I think that that's a big issue is you have to buy into both. You have to embrace the philosophy and then you have to qualify under the insurance benefit. There are certainly people who love the philosophy of hospice but don't qualify, right? Um, and then there are people who qualify for hospice who do not embrace this philosophy of letting go of things that are no longer helping them live a meaningful life. Um, so the two really need to uh, come together. But um, back to what you were talking, it sounds like this is an amazing interdisciplinary team that comes to you. So does that mean hospice is not a place? Hospice is not a place. And I know sometimes we hear people talking about, you know, going to hospice or going into hospice or something like that. Um, and I guess it's it's okay to use that terminology as long as, as you understand that it doesn't necessarily mean physically going someplace. 
Most people in the United States receive hospice care in their own homes. Um, the vast majority of people in the United States receive hospice care someplace in, in the general community. So that could be their own home. It could be an assisted living facility. It could be a nursing home. Um, in, in the Rochester area, um, and we have these comfort care homes, which are two-bed hospice homes, um, which are appropriate places for some, place, some people to go to receive their, their hospice, their end-of-life care with the support of, of an, a hospice team. I think that there are things like this really throughout the region, throughout the country. Um, and then every once in a while, people do receive their hospice care in the hospital. And that's under really specific circumstances. Um, really, when they have symptom management needs, they have you know pain or they have shortness of breath or they're delirious and we just can't control that at home, even with all of the medications, even with all of the other support and, and education for the family. Sometimes people do need to go to a hospital or some kind of an inpatient hospice facility to have um, their symptoms controlled. Um, but this is a term that I've heard you use about inpatient hospice in the past, um, which I think is a really good one. Inpatient hospice is hospice intensive care. So it's not for everybody. Not everybody should get it. Not everybody wants it. Um, and so the hospice team works really hard to make sure that the people who get that kind of care truly need that kind of care. That was a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And, and, it's, and it's something that we... Good thing there are specialists involved who know all this stuff. It's true. It's true. Um, so we're going to do a wrap up. Before we wrap up, I think there's something important to think about, which is um, what are the patients who would benefit most from a palliative care consult? We talked a little bit about how um, we want all physicians really to have core basic primary palliative care skills. Um, it's just good medicine. But there certainly is a subset of patients who would really benefit from palliative care. So we actually have a future episode that talks all about um, the consultation process, how to call, who to call it on, et cetera. So we won't go into that. But um, it makes sense for a palliative care specialist to get involved when, when you just need help. Um, there is nothing easy about talking about life and death with someone who's really sick. Um, and it takes time to unpack values, um, and not a lot of physicians have time, um, right? We live in a healthcare system that does not, it doesn't um, incentivize thoughtfulness. Mm -hmm. um, it's a fee-for-service healthcare system. The more you do to someone, the more you get paid. Um, and so if I were a surgeon and I had two hours in my day, would I rather go to the OR and do a few surgeries and get reimbursed a lot or spend two hours at the bedside with a patient asking her how she likes to garden? Um, it, it's a no-brainer in our healthcare system. But thankfully, as palliative care providers, we have that time and we enjoy that time. Um, so anytime that there is someone that you think deserves or needs a lot of support, any times when there's conflict, so messy family dynamics um, that just needs time to kind of sift through, that's appropriate for a palliative care consult. Someone who has very complex symptom management needs, um, you know, not just pain, but pain and nausea and anxiety and insomnia and fatigue, um, that can be com complex. That's appropriate for a palliative care consult. Um, do you have any other thoughts about palliative care, hospice, things that we've talked about so far? So, you know, we're palliative care physicians. We really believe in what we do. We want to see all the patients, maybe not all of the patients, but many of the patients. Um, so I would, I would say that in general, um, when it comes to palliative care, earlier is almost always better. Um, almost always 
um, people who come to us could have come to us earlier. And in fact, there are studies. There, there was a, the most famous one. This is probably one of the big landmark studies in, in palliative care. It was published by Tim L and colleagues in the New England Journal in 2010 um, that looked at patients with a specific type of lung cancer and found that the patients who were referred to palliative care earlier in the course of, of their disease lived better. You know, they had better symptom management. They had care that was more concordant with what their own goals and values were. Um, and they also lived longer the earlier that they were referred to palliative care. So um, there have been other studies like that in the intervening years. Um, and so I think that's, that's a really important point. Um, and when it comes to hospice, a lot of times it's, it's the same thing. I think the problem with hospice is that People do have this perception that we that we touched on a little earlier that when hospice gets involved, that means they're going to die. You know, just the act of having hospice involved um, is somehow going to hasten hasten their death. Don't you wish you had that much power? I just walk in a room and something happens. It would be, you know, I I would probably use it in different ways, but yeah. Um, so the, the the truth is, I think it's a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Everybody knows, you know, I had my cousin's wife was signed on to hospice and then she died three days later. And so I don't want to sign on to hospice until I'm really on my deathbed. Well, so if everybody thinks that, you know, that, that, that I can't sign on to hospice until I'm three days from dying, everybody's going to die three days after hospice. But the truth is a prognosis of six months or less and not pursuing that disease directed or life prolonging therapy, that's all you need um, in order to access that hospice benefit. And the fact is that just like in palliative care, the relationships in hospice are so important. The longer of a time you have to develop that relationship with your hospice nurse, with the social worker, with the chaplain, with the whole team, the better they can work for you. Um, and the better chance I think you have of, of having that really good quality of life for the entirety of the time you have left, not just the, the, those last three days when things are, are really in crisis. So earlier is good. And I always tell my patients and families, you know, there comes a time when the things that we do are no longer prolonging life and we're really just prolonging death and dying. But I can't decide when that, that point is. There's a clear line in the sand for many people and only they know where that is. And so I think as providers, our job is to find out what that sand and the uh, line, the, the line in the sand, there you go, look like um, and, and where that is. But um, we're going to do a wrap up and Nick, we're going to ask you to pop up that chart um, on the screen. And this is a nice chart that really divvies up palliative care versus hospice, who's appropriate for what. Um, and as you can see, again, the big difference is that hospice has very specific qualifications, right? So someone has to think that maybe there's a less than six month prognosis, but we all know we don't have crystal balls. We don't have expiration dates on the bottom of our feet. It's a guesstimate, it's a gut feeling. Um, but for palliative care, it's really anybody with a chronic illness at any stage. Um, and the sooner the better is what I'm hearing from you, right, Rashmi? Yep. Um, and so this is the chart that breaks it down. Um, another big difference between palliative care and hospice is sort of the idea of disease uh, targeted therapy, life prolonging treatments. Um, when you're receiving palliative care, it can go hand in hand with treatment. Um, and 
again, people will do better when they're feeling better. So if you have a physician taking care of you who can help you feel better, that chemo there, you're going to tolerate that chemotherapy better, right? You're going to tolerate dialysis better. Um, and it makes sense at the time. It fits within your values. But when, not if, but when that time comes and you're entering the end of life period, um, the treatment may not make sense anymore. And so for hospice, when hospice comes into play is when everybody feels that these treatments just aren't prolonging life anymore. They're prolonging death, prolonging suffering. Um, and we just want to focus on whatever it is that makes life meaningful. And so that's another big difference between palliative care and hospice. Hospice is not a place, is what I heard you say, and that's important to think about too. And neither is palliative care. Palliative care is not a program. We have a lot of uh, patients and families who feel uh, very stressed out about having a chronic illness, and they say, I, I want the palliative care program, thinking that it's people who can take care of all of these things, and we do in a multidisciplinary way, but it's really not something you sign on. Again, it's a specialty of medicine. Um, so those are sort of the big differences. Um, we, At the end of the day, it's a spectrum. Um, palliative care, hospice, comfort care, these are all phrases that we use. Um, and it all shares the same philosophy of focusing on quality of life, um, prioritizing someone's dignity, um, and allowing them to live and die in the framework of whatever chronic illness that they have. It sounds like a, like a great summary. Thank you. So what if we take a little bit of time now at, at, the, at the tail end of our podcast to talk about, you know, kind of the things that make us crazy or, or, or pet peeves about this aspect of, of hospice and palliative care. And for me, I, I, I actually mentioned it a little bit earlier in the podcast. When people use that phrase, there's nothing more we can do. Um, that, that, that just really, really gets me crazy um, because I think we've made clear, I hope we've made clear over the over the course of the last uh, several, several minutes, um, that there's a lot more we can do, whether somebody has just been diagnosed with a disease, um, or whether somebody is hours or even days from life throughout that whole spectrum of illness. Um, there's always something more that palliative care can do. Um, and, and at some point that that can include the assistance of the hospice team. How about you? I have lots of gripes as usual. But I think the big one for me is, um, you know, not understanding the difference between palliative care and hospice and perpetuating the stigma of whatever fears patients or even providers have. So as a provider, if you don't know what I do, um, then in a sense, when, when you call me, you know, my biggest pet peeve is when I feel like I'm being weaponized mm -hmm. in a way that palliative care is being weaponized to go get that hospice referral, go go talk to them about this because I don't want to um, go get that DNR. Um, it sets an agenda for me, whereas my rule is when I walk in a room, I don't have an agenda. So, so not understanding the difference um, and then using us in a way that's really not appropriate. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, as providers understand more about all the things that we can do, that it, it'll just be like calling cardiology, yeah. um, calling... Um, surgery for a uh, ruptured appendix, yep. you know, it, it's not intimidating and we're just another specialty of medicine. Yep. So we hope, hope that this is useful to you in your daily practice. 
this is clearly a work in progress for us. This is our first episode. Um, so we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear some feedback from you, um, questions, concerns. Um, was this helpful? Did we talk too fast? Um, were there a lot of... Was my headphones falling off really distracting? <laughs> like um, to me. Are there any topics that you would love for us to cover in future episodes? So um, send any questions, concerns, suggestions to um, our email address. It's medical underscore timeout at urmc.rochester.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Please, please reach out. So I am going to start reading now so I don't miss any of the people that we need to thank here. Um, so first of all, this podcast is supported by a grant from the System Transformation Fund through the Safety Net and Program Support Office with UR Medicine. Um, we'd like to give our thanks to Dr. Kevin McCormick and to Nancy Scott for spearheading this grant um, and also just for their commitment to uh, palliative care education um, in, in Rochester proper and also for our um, affiliated hospitals and colleagues. Huge thank you to Levi Ganji, who uh, made, produced the music that we're using for this podcast. And a huge thanks to Nick Davis for recording, editing, producing, and making sure we don't sound like uh, fools. Um, and I probably should also say that um, the things that we've said on the podcast are our opinions. Everything that we've said is based on our training and our experience. Um, and while that was done within a particular system, we, of course, have, have tailored our approaches over, over many years. Um, and that's what you're hearing about today. Um, and we'd like to thank you as well um, for taking this medical time out with us. Um, we hope you'll join us next time when we will talk about Opioids 101. Have a great couple of weeks. <laughs>